the other day I was reading in the Bible, I decided to start from the beginning. So I was reading through the book of Genesis. And I'm in Genesis 1, and I get to verse 26 and verse 27. Very familiar verses to you. You know the verse in 26 that says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the ground, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And I got just reading through that, and I thought, you know, that is such an incredible verse. It's such an incredible verse that God says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. That's pretty significant that God said, I'm going to create human beings to be like us. So what does that mean, to be like us? If you're going to base what God is like just on the very first chapter of the Bible alone, you would know three things about God really quickly. That number one, he's incredibly powerful. And number two, he's incredibly creative. And number three, he creates beauty out of chaos. That is the God that we see in the first chapter. And he says to us, I want you to be just like that. I want you to be powerful. I want you to be creative. And I think sometimes we sit back and we're like, I don't feel very powerful. I don't feel very creative. I don't really feel like I'm created in the image of God right now because I, sometimes I feel a little bit more overwhelmed than I do feeling creative. Sometimes I feel a little bit more defeated than I feel powerful. And sometimes I feel like I'm not really living an integrated life. And sometimes we feel like I don't have much to offer. But yet God says in the very first chapter of the Bible, I want you to be just like me. And I think when we read that and we compare our life to it, we sometimes wonder, how did I get into the situation that I'm in right now? And how am I supposed to get out of the situation I am right now? I think in a year like this, after almost two years of COVID, a lot of us feel a little bit defeated and a little bit frustrated and a little bit annoyed that we're still at the place that we are right now. I think we're a little bit discouraged. So let me tell you about my last week Saturday. Last Saturday I do what I do almost every single week. I get up early, I finish my message, and I have it done and prepared, and then about noon I go for a long bike ride. I do this about every single Saturday. We, li we live by um, a big bike trail that's about a 10-mile loop, and in the middle of it there's all mountain bike trails, and there's little rivers and little streams, and there's farmland, and there's horses and cows and pigs. So it's just this beautiful ecosystem that every Saturday I'll go for a bike ride to kind of process the message in my head and kind of think about everything that I'm going to talk about today. And I've actually, in, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I've actually learned during COVID, I like riding my bike in the weather. I like riding in the wind and the rain and the snow. That is actually fun. The best part I know about winter riding, there's no bugs. Summer riding, you're always getting bugs. And the best thing about winter riding, there's no snakes. It's the worst thing to be riding your bike and all of a sudden, boom, there's a snake in your path. So I'm all for winter riding. So last Saturday, I'm having this beautiful bike ride and all of a sudden, I was on a wet, slippery bridge. I hit a pack of leaves and boom. I'm down on the ground. A little public service announcement, always wear your helmet. 
Fortunately, I had my helmet on. I would have probably been in serious trouble if I wasn't. So I fell down. I'm laying on the ground, and I'm, fortunately, I got up, and I'm okay. didn't break anything. But on my bike, the derailleur broke off. The derailleur is this, this component that's attached to the frame. It's by your back tire, and that is the component that makes the chain go up and down on the back cassette. So that's broken off, so I can't ride my bike home. So fortunately, I'm by the main road. So I call our son, Trey, and he comes and he picks me up. And I'm thinking, I'm feeling pretty good, no big deal. The derailleur's broke. I can get that fixed quickly. Until I went to Google and I figured out that derailleur on my bike is going to cost somewhere between $200 and $500 to fix. And I'm like, dang, that's, that's quite an expensive little accident that I had there. So I'm pretty frustrated with myself, and I go to the bike shop with my bike, and I think the tech guy there knew that I was a little frustrated because he quickly said, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. He said, your derailleur is designed to break off upon impact. To fix it, it's going to be about 30 bucks. It's a small little clip, 20 minutes of labor, and I can have you out of here in 20 minutes. I was greatly relieved, as you can all imagine, because for the last four days, I've been perseverating on $300, $400, $500. Should I really fix my bike? Is it worth it? Is it too much damage so I should just forget about it? And then you kind of think, why, was, why did I fall? You know, why, why wasn't I more careful? And you get those, those scripts going in your mind that are just kind of getting really defeating even listening to and I thought, you know, I think a lot of times we look at the situation in the world the same way I looked at my bike accident. We quickly get overwhelmed and we think the problem is way bigger than the solution. And we start to wonder, what did I do wrong or what do I need to fix the situation that we're in? And I think a lot of times we get stuck on that question, what do I need to do? What do I need to do right now? And I think God wants us all to take a break from the question, what do I need to do? I think he wants us to take a little break from the question and start, stop wondering about what do I need to do and to focus on what is God going to do about it? What is God's solution at, our, at this moment in time? And that's one of the reasons we're going to take communion at the end of the service. To remember what God has done in the past but also to remind us that God's going to keep on doing that every single day for the rest of our life. To remind ourselves the faithfulness of God to know our past, but to also know our future and to get us into our future. To remind us that there is nothing too difficult for God to do right now. But sometimes we need to get step out of that seat of saying, what do I need to do? And step back and say, what's God going to do right now? Because he said, hey, I want to be your father. He wants to be in the position of being the driver. And I think sometimes we got to remind ourselves, let's let him drive. So we often talk about the mission of Lake Effect Church is that we are a church of people that are devoted to Christ and his message for the world. That's who we are. A people that are devoted to Christ and the message to the world. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves, how does that happen? How do you become a devoted follower of Christ? How do, you, how do you become a person that is dedicated to the gospel spreading to the rest of the world? How do you become that person that's dedicated for the sake of other people? We need to remind ourselves that there's three things that are always happening in our life on a daily basis as followers of Jesus. The first thing is that we are known by God. In every single day, Jesus is encountering us. 
And every single day, the Holy Spirit is working on our behalf to transform us. That's what God is doing about our situation. He knows us. He encounters us. And he transforms us so we can live a life of integration for the sake of other people. That's what God is doing about this situation in the world. That's what God's doing about the situation where you say, I don't feel very powerful and I don't feel very creative. I don't feel like I reflect the image of God. God is saying, I know you, I'll encounter you, and I'll transform you. So today I want to talk about being known by God. What does that mean that God knows us? But before I go there, I need to be honest with you and tell you that I didn't like my message last week. I got home and I thought, oh, there's something just off about that message. Now, normally that happens to me quite a bit. I get home and I get a little insecure and I'm like, was that good? Was it bad? And then that thought goes away in a little while. But I knew this was God challenging me in a way because I didn't feel any condemnation. But I felt like it was an invitation from God to say there was something a little bit off. Now, the message wasn't an entire train wreck. I, I liked the beginning and I liked the middle. It was the ending. But I thought that wasn't the right ending. That wasn't the right conclusion at all. I ended, and it was a little bit legalistic, and it was a little bit too simple, and it really didn't make, it didn't pull the whole message together. I ended my message by saying, basically in a little nutshell, if you have any problems in your life, just confess your sins and repent and everything will be made better. And if you don't know what your sin is, ask God to show your sin and you'll show your sin, you repent and you're on to feel better. Now, I'm all for confession of sin. I'm all for saying, God, is there sin in my life? Show me my sin so I can be right with you. I'm all for that. But sometimes just identifying your sin and confessing your sin isn't enough to bring transformation in your life. There's a whole lot more. See, if you're wondering, what was that message about last week? What did he talk about last week? Let me remind you. So I talked last week about in 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul gives us an amazing verse. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. See, the Apostle Paul in that passage says, there is a spiritual war over your mind. There is a spiritual war over your thoughts. There's a spiritual war over who is going to control your mind and who is going to influence your mind and your heart. And Paul tells us that the enemy has a plan that is in direct opposition to the plan that God has for your life. God created us to live in community with him. God created us to live in confidence, to experience his power, to experience his transformation so that we would live lives of creativity. And the enemy comes in and he says, I want to do the exact opposite in your life. And sometimes he's pretty successful. Sometimes he's pretty good at what he does because I think all of us have probably experienced a time or two in our Christian life where we wondered, does my life even matter that much? Or we wondered, do I have any influence to offer right now? Or we've wondered, am I of any value? 
Or we wonder, do people really want to include me? Or do they include me out of obligation? And sometimes we wonder, am I really loved? Instead of feeling loved, a lot of us sometimes feel like I'm just tolerated. That people just put up with me. And instead of walking in power and creativity, we walk around kind of feeling like we're traumatized versions of who God created us to be. And as a result of these feelings and as a result of the enemy just badgering us with these thoughts and the ideas, we start striving. We start striving too much or we become controlling people or we do things that we don't want to do. I love in the passage how, how Paul says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. See, what is carnal is when we strive or when we think if I have more knowledge, I could be successful. If I had more followers, I would be more influential. Paul says that's carnal. But he said the weapons that we have are spiritual. See, the weapons that we have is that we're known by God, that we're encountered by Jesus, and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. God's working on our behalf. And that's a good thing because the battle to control our mind is probably bigger than any of us ever realize. And why is there such a battle over our mind? Because Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. God's working really hard to change us into His image. He's working really hard that we become like us. That we live the people, that we live as the people we're supposed to be, but then we have that enemy who's always coming behind and trying to undo the plans of God. So that was kind of the body of my message last week. And then at the end, the conclusion, I'm like, so how do we get right? How do we, how do we fight this battle? And I talked about how you confess your sins and you repent for your sins and ask God to give you the desire and work really hard. And while that's good advice, it's missing the spiritual component of what God is doing on our behalf. It was missing the component that we're known by God and we're encountered by Jesus and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to focus on today is just being known by God. See, the first step in any type of restoration that we have comes from the fact that God knows us. We see in Genesis 1 this beautiful story that I read part of it where God is, creates us in his image. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve are really enjoying being created in the image of God. They're having such a fun time that they're completely naked and they experience no shame. They're completely vulnerable with each other and they're completely vulnerable with God and they're enjoying that life. But by chapter 3, something changes. Sin enters and suddenly they're putting their clothes on and they're experiencing shame. But before they confess any sin, God does something remarkable. He comes and looks for them, and he finds them, and he talks to them, and he offers them a plan of escape or a plan of salvation. It's a pretty incredible story that God extends his grace in the midst of Adam and Eve who are hiding. And see, this is what separates Christianity from all the other religions, that the creator looks for the created one, and the powerful one looks for the weak, and the one who has sinned against looks for the sinner 
to bring them restoration and wholeness in their life. All because God loves us and because he knows us deeply. And see, what God knows about us is that left on our own would still be hiding. That we would never come out and experience what it means to be rescued by God. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, but whoever loves God is known by God. See, the reason that we love God is because he knows us so well and came into our life to offer us a plan of escape. And what God does to Adam and Eve, he comes to them and he starts asking them questions. His first question is, where are you? Followed by, why are you hiding? Did you do what I told you not to do? See, God was not expecting Adam and Eve to come out of hiding on their own. He wasn't expecting them to initiate the process. He was asking them to respond to what he is already doing for them. See, to be known by God is more than God just knowing every single thing about you. To be known by God means that you are willing to express to God everything about yourself. That you are willing to expose to God the parts of your life that you are trying to hide. That is what it means to be known by God. That you're willing to answer the hard questions that he asks you. But seeing being known by God is sometimes hard for us to understand. And sometimes it's hard to participate in. Even though one of the most fundamental desires of human beings is to be vulnerable and truly known by the people around us. That's one of the most fundamental desires that we have that a lot of mental health professionals would tell us that, that, that we're just we're wired for that. We want to be completely known and we want to be completely loved, especially in relationships that matter a whole lot to you. We want the security to know that we have a friend or a spouse that knows everything about us and still loves us. We're looking for that security of being able to expose all the things about us that we don't like to somebody else and they would still love us. As the saying goes, it's been said that there's no greater emotional security than feeling accepted and loved for everything we are, the good, bad, and the ugly. See, that powerful longing that we have to be exposed and to be known and loved is one reason why we can be hurt so bad from people. And often if we feel like we need to hide parts of ourselves from other people, we don't experience what it is to be truly loved. And when we do the same thing with God, when we're, we're, we're unwilling or scared or embarrassed to expose the parts of ourselves that we don't like to God, we often miss his deep love for us and his deep forgiveness for us. See, it's interesting that we know that God knows everything about us, but yet we're like Adam and Eve and we still like to hide. I think sometimes when we get shame and ashamed of ourselves or we feel guilty or embarrassed, we lose some logic and we do like what Adam and Eve did, we run and we try to hide. Even though we have this desire to be fully known by God, we have a tendency to hide. And that can have really dangerous consequences. See, we all wanna know that God truly loves us deeply and will forgive us. But we have to take the risk of exposing the things about ourselves we don't like to God. 
just the same way we do it in other relationships. Because most people, most Christians you talk to, they understand that God loves everybody. But they have a hard time understanding that God loves them as an individual. This would be very common, you know, when I'll listen to people share with me their story or their testimony. They often talk about two different big dates in their life. The date they met Jesus and they found Jesus and began to walk with Jesus. Then often they have this other date, which is a time that they knew that God deeply loved them and forgave them from their sins and they could be totally vulnerable and exposed to God. And I think Paul sort of references this in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says, now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Sometimes we're on that journey to really expose ourselves to God or expose ourselves to the people around us to totally experience what it's like to be loved. So being known by God is really important. As I said last week, confessing your sin is important, but to tell God why you sinned is to be known by God. To tell God your dreams or your ambitions or your desires, that's to be known by God. To tell God what you really want to do that is sinful is to be known by God. To tell God where you're hurt or you're discouraged or you're frustrated, that's to be known by God. To be known by God is telling him everything that is going on on your inside. Becky has this classic question that she likes to ask me. And she'll say to me, what's it like to be you today? That's code for, you're not just going to say, fine, okay. But tell me, what's it really like to be you? What's going on on your inside? What's scaring you? What's hurting you? What's exciting to you? What's fun? What's challenging to you? I think that's what God asks us when we meet with him. What's it like to be you? And see, that's risky to answer. What if she laughs at me? Says, why are you scared about that? Why are you thinking about that? That's crazy. What if she said that? That's risky to be vulnerable. But it's rewarding when he can be totally transparent and receive love. I think we need to be better at answering that question of what's it like to be you? Maybe ask somebody that today. If you have some time. It's not a quick ask the cashier at Meyer. What's it like to be you? And then leave. Becky knows that's a loaded question. And she better have some time. What's it like to be you? Because we really want to be known. We really want to talk about those things. But it's scary. And so sometimes what we do, instead of, we like to dodge being fully known by God. And what we do, and then we say, well, I will just know more about God. I will replace Knowing God without just have more knowledge about God. I know I'm all for study. That's very important. But not at the expense of God knowing you. Listen to what Paul says. Earlier I read where Paul says, whoever loves God is known by God. But there's two verses that are very interesting before that in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says, now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. 
but whoever loves God is known by God. You might be wondering, what in the world does food sacrifice to idols have anything to do with this message? What's the correlation between food sacrifice to idols and God knowing you deeply? See, Paul is addressing some religious leaders in this book who have all the facts right, but their heart is wrong. And in the end, they have a quest for knowledge, but they haven't really experienced what it really means to be known by God. So in the end, they're missing out on that deep and abiding relationship with God that they really want to have because they're so focused on knowledge. See, in 1 Corinthians 8, the big issue of the day is what to do about meat offered to idols. See, the new believers, the, new, the Corinthians that were new believers came from a, a pagan background that in their pagan practices, they believed that all meat contained demons, so they would offer the meat to their idol, and the idol would, their, their idol would cleanse the meat from the demons, and in exchange, the idol would come into their meat, so then they were eating cleanse meat, but that had their idol of the day. And so the new, the new followers, the new followers of Jesus knew that that was wrong and they couldn't do it anymore. So what they decided is that we shouldn't eat any meat. Their conscience was saying to them, you know what, we, we've practiced pagan worship and this whole meat thing, we, we, did, we got it all wrong. So they're like, let's, let's not even bother with meat anymore. Like just, let's just become vegans. That'd be just a lot easier because they were so defiled by all the practices that they did with meat. So the leaders of the day were coming to them and saying, no, 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 you guys got that all wrong. It's no big deal to eat meat. You can eat meat. That's fine. Your idols, that, that's, that wasn't real. God is the only true one, true God. So you can eat your meat and stop complaining about it. But the people of the day, they were, their conscience, that still really bothered their conscience. They're like, I can't do that. And the leaders were kind of harassing them and saying, yeah, do it anyway. Stop worrying about it. And Paul's like, no, we're not going to have any of that. See, what I love about Paul is he's, he was probably the most brilliant theologian that ever walked. But the compassion and the love that he has for people was outstanding. And Paul is saying to these leaders, don't you see what you're doing? You're hurting these people. You're being a bully. You're being a theological bully by telling them, look, you can eat the meat, doesn't matter. And Paul's saying it's bothering their conscience. So be slow. You don't have to harass them into eating meat. Let God deal with them slowly. There's nothing wrong with not eating meat. That was not a sin to say I'm not going to abstain from meat. But Paul was saying to the leaders, you're actually doing more harm to these people by forcing them than the harm of not eating meat. And it's an interesting chapter or verse because he ends that by simply saying, whoever loves God is known by God. Paul's saying, you're harming these people. Don't harm these people. Instead, Let these people be known by God. Let them go to God with their challenges over meat. Let them go to God with their, their conscience that's bothering them. And as well as to the leaders, he's saying to them, you have replaced being known by God with your knowledge. And you're missing out on the good things that God wants to do for you. 
it seems like such a great thing. They had so much knowledge. They were the leaders of the day. But as Francis Chan said, they became modern-day bullies for these new believers who their conscience was bothered. And I love this passage. And I love the simplicity that God knows you. And God invites you into this deep relationship where you can be vulnerable and transparent and feel safe and secure because you know no matter what that he loves you and he has this deep plan for each person and that's what happens when we are in we are known by God that's how we begin to break the lies of the enemy that builds up strongholds against us because we know the truth is found in a deep and abiding relationship with God it's not found just because you have more and more knowledge. And don't get me wrong, knowledge is okay. But how you defeat the enemy's plans for your life is when you fully understand that God loves you as an individual. And that God has great plans for you. As that scripture we read earlier, he knows your past and he knows your future and he knows how to get you into the good plans that he has for you. That's one of the best ways to defeat the enemy's plans. It's when you know that God has more victory than the enemy has strategy. And that's why we're celebrating communion today. We're celebrating communion to remember what God has done in the past. And remember he's going to continue to do that today. And he's going to continue to do that tomorrow. And as Paul says, the more we are fully known, the more love that we are going to experience from God and the more love that we're going to be able to give to God. Mm -hmm.